0: Well, good morning, church. Man, it's good to be in God's house today. If you grew up in this area or uh, went to public school, you probably got an education on the battles of Gettysburg. If you have kids uh, in the public school system like I do, uh, I've been on many field trips to Gettysburg. And so if you know anything about American history and the Civil War, you've probably heard a story about Little Round Top. On July 2nd, 1863, Joshua Chamberlain, a student of theology, by the way, and a professor turned Union colonel, was leading 300 soldiers into a certain defeat on the battlefield of Gettysburg. After standing there ground for about five attacks from the 15th and the 47th Alabama Infantry, Chamberlain only had 80 men left. Many had been knocked down. In fact, he himself had been knocked down, took a bullet to the belt buckle, but he got back up again. It was his date with destiny. When Sergeant Tozier informed Chamberlain that no reinforcements were coming and that his men were down to one round of ammunition apiece, Chamberlain had to act decisively. Their lookout was a young boy. He was perched up high in a tree on Little Round Top. And he informed Colonel Chamberlain that the Confederates were forming their rank again. Now, the rational thing to do when you're outmanned, outgunned, you've got one round of ammunition left, would be to surrender. But Chamberlain wasn't wired that way. He made a decisive, defining decision that deterred the tide and single-handedly saved the Union. In full view of the enemy, Chamberlain climbed onto the barricade of stones, and he gave a command. He pointed his sword in the air, and he yelled, Charge! His men fixed bayonets. They started running at the Confederate army, which vastly outnumbered them. They caught them off guard by executing a great right wheel. And in what ranks as one of the most improbable victories in military history, 80 Union soldiers captured 4,000 Confederates in five minutes flat. What seemed like a suicide mission saved the Union. Historians believe that if Chamberlain had not charged, the rebels would have gained the high ground. If the rebels gained the high ground, there's a good chance they would have won the Battle of Gettysburg. And if the rebels had won the battle, the historical consensus is that the Confederates would have won the war. One man's courage saved the day. Saved the war and saved the Union. Here's why I tell you that story. Later in his years, Chamberlain would reflect back on the war with these words. I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. I knew I may die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. Come on. (laughs) That's a don't hold back story if I ever heard one. I knew I might die, but it won't be in retreat. Here's my prayer, 2023. God, grace your church with the inability to do nothing. Come on, how about it? God give us the inability to do nothing. Don't hold back. This is a word that has an urgency to it. As we wrap our faith around this thought this year, it's a word that's born out of Isaiah chapter 54 in verse 2. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to go there with me again today in this second week of our series Isaiah 54, verse 2. Here's what the Lord says to his people Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. I, I want to just focus in today on the first thought, the first sentence Enlarge the place of your tent. To enlarge the place of your tent means you begin to make some room in your life. It says your tent, not not just in a general sense like God might do something somewhere, enlarge the place of your tent, open up your mind to what God can do. Last week I said this, I want to say it again. Before you can do anything great for God, you have to believe God can do great things. Not just that he can do great things, but that he can and wants to do great things in and through You, you have to make room for God. So here's the challenge today. It's very simple. Get a God-sized vision. Get a God-sized dream. And and not just a God-sized dream, but can I encourage you? Get a God-sanctified dream. Because, come on, how many of you know it's really easy for us as as American Christians to take a truth in God's word and then to try to... twisted and manipulated so that that it actually is just a confession of our own desires. So don't just get a god sized dream for your life, get a god sanctified dream for your life. I, I never cease to be amazed at how many Christians can quote the second half of Psalm 37 verse 4. Psalm 37 verse 4 says take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, you might not know the address for that verse. You might not know where to find it in your Bible. But so many Christians can say with confidence and faith on the authority of God's word, he said he'd give me the desires of my heart. You ever heard somebody say that? God said he'd give me the desires of my heart. And we forget that's a conditional promise. Like, take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, to delight in the Lord means that every other delight is submitted to his delight. Like Moses got this. That's why Moses said at one point, God, I don't even want to go to the promised land unless your presence goes with me. Because his delight was in the Lord. And the promised land didn't look that promising if God's not there. Paul understood this. Like he gave his life for the mission of God, to see God's people saved. And so at one point, Paul actually said, I would rather be cut off myself than for God's people to perish. Because he was that committed to the heart of God, the mission of God, what delights the Lord the most. I love the promise that Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 32, 17. He just says, oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. And then he says this, nothing is too hard for you. Can we just say that together this morning? Nothing is too hard for you. Here's my prayer. God, help us to open the canopy of our minds to see with a heavenly perspective, a God-sized dream, a God-sanctified dream of what God wants to do for us. There's a statement I read this week by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. This is powerful. He said, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. Think about that. He said, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. A low view of God, he said, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. Evils. I love what Eugene Peterson said about our worship. He said, worship is the way we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves. Isn't that good? That's what we came to do this morning, by the way. I didn't come for you. You didn't come for me, I hope. We came to interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves, to say, God, I'm giving you the first hour on the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day, not my day, not your day. Come on. Let's interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves by lifting our eyes to who he is and what he can do. Maybe that's why. Before God says, enlarge the place of your tent, he tells the people to worship. I know we looked at it closely last week, but I just want to read verse one again out of Isaiah 54. Verse one says, sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, if we worship, if we begin to sing, if we begin to exalt God, it changes our perspective. David said it like this. David said, oh, let us magnify the Lord. Let us exalt his name together. I love the story in Genesis 15. God comes back to Abraham, and Abraham's sitting in his tent And God reminds him of his promise. Abraham, I've got a great plan for your life. I have a rich reward in store for you. But Abraham couldn't see it. He couldn't believe that God had a plan for him. And the reason he couldn't believe it is because he hadn't been fruitful in his own life. Specifically, his wife had not been able to give him a son. And so ultimately, Abraham's saying, like, all of the rewards you can give me don't matter because I'm forfeiting them to someone else. In Genesis 15 verse 3, Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. In other words, as Abraham's sitting there in his tent and God comes to him, and that had to be amazing, but he's looking around at a place of barrenness. He's looking in his tent, the place he and his wife live And Yeah, we heard God speak, but, but we live here. And and, and I don't understand how I'm going to be the father of many nations if I can't even father one son. And then God does something that's so so significant. God calls Abraham to come out of the tent. Look at verse 5 with me on the screen. He said, he took him outside and he said, look up to the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Now, we know because we have modern technology and amazing telescopes. When he said count the stars, that was impossible. There are billions of stars. But he said, if you can count the stars, go ahead and try to count them because that's how big my plan is for your life. And so here's what God does for him and what I need him to do for my life. And I believe in yours as well. Abraham's looking at what God wants to do, but he's limited by the size of the canvas that he's sitting under. And God says, you need a much bigger canvas. You're sitting in your tent and you can't make sense of the things that are happening in your life and how they align with the plans that I have for you. But if you would step out from under your tent and step under my tent Psalm 119 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show forth the works of his hands. Verse four says, God has pitched a tent in the heavens for the sun. So God says, get under my tent. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how I am orchestrating the cosmos and realize there is so much more that can be done. G.K. Chesterton said this how much happier would you be? How much more of you there would be if the hammer of a high God could smash your small cosmos? That's what we need. We we need the hammer of a high God to smash our small cosmos. That we just think too small. In fact, God came back to Abraham in Genesis 18 and he said uh, explicitly, by this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And the Bible says when God told Abraham that, Sarah heard it and she laughed. Now, I don't think it was like this condescending, maniacal laugh. You know, she wasn't like trying to offend God. I think it was more the way we would respond. She kind of nervously laughed it off. You know, like when a person says to you like, hey, listen, listen, God, God can save your son. God can restore that relationship. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or somebody comes to you and says, God can heal cancer. I believe it. God can heal cancer. And you're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's what God says. Why did she laugh? And then God, God asked a question. In Genesis 18 and verse 14, he says this, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And church, I think we need to wrestle that question to the ground in the most personal and practical way in our life. You need to ask yourself that question. You need to deal with that. Is there anything too hard for God? Because there are things that we believe God can do, but then there are moments where we get a little bit nervous about the potential that, yeah, you know. Why are you know. Why are you laughing? He says, God can do it. God will do it. I love love the story in Psalm 126. In fact, I want to take the rest of our time here, and I want to go to Psalm 126. If you could go there with me. It's just six verses long. It's a very short but powerful Place of scripture. While you're turning there, let me, let me tell you about another moment that, that often it, we see this play out in our life, but it played out in an exceptional way in Acts chapter 12. Peter, the apostle, had been arrested. He's in prison. It, it says in Acts chapter 12, verse five, that Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So envision this. There's a prayer meeting happening. God, we need you to set... Peter, free from prison. While they're praying, the Bible says an angel of the Lord showed up at the prison and did exactly that. He he opens the prison doors, releases Peter from his shackles, and begins to lead him through the doors, outside the prison, out through the gates, and into the street. And the Bible says Peter thought it was a dream. Like, he didn't even realize this is actually happening. He thought, I'm having a vision here. God's just showing me the potential. And no, he's actually standing in the street before he even realizes, I'm awake. This is real. And so he goes to the house where the people are praying for God to set him free. And he knocks on the door. And a little servant girl named Rhoda shows up to the door. She doesn't open it, probably for fear of persecution. And, you know, so she's like, secret church. She's like, what's the password? And Peter's like, Rhoda, it's me. Peter. She gets so excited. She forgets to open the door. She runs back into the house and she tells everybody, Peter's here. They're like, what are you talking about? No, Peter, he's really here. He's outside the door. Now, I-, I want you to see, before we go to Psalm 126, I want you to see what the church That was praying for Peter's release said to Rhoda in verse 16, they said, you are out of your mind. (laughs) But when she kept on insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. Isn't it funny how quick we are to try to explain away the supernatural? sometimes we try to explain away the supernatural with something that's maybe just a less supernatural. Like, I mean, if it was his angel, that would be pretty cool. But I don't know. Maybe they've seen an angel before. Maybe they didn't have a hard time grasping for that realm of the supernatural. So they wanted to dismiss, laugh off something that was outside of their faith realm by explaining, well, maybe it's just his angel. Meanwhile, Peter's still standing out there. It says, It says, In verse 15, or 16, rather, it says, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. So we have gotta get outside of our tent. We have gotta get outside of what we're comfortable believing God can do. And we need to wrestle this truth. Is anything too hard for God? Is there anything he can't do? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I don't mean I don't know. (laughs) Why are you laughing? Psalm 126 describes what Isaiah was prophesying about. Isaiah is saying there's coming a day where the Lord... Go ahead and enlarge your tent. Expand your territory. Because there's coming a day where where God's going to bring you into a new land. He's going to bless you. You're going to prosper. Psalm 126 looks back on the reality of that prophetic word fulfilled. And it says this in verse one When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. I love that. When God did it, it was like a dream, it was like a dream come true. I mean, it was like Peter standing at the door. I, I can't believe it. He's actually, I mean, we were praying for it, we asked him to do it. But did you think he was actually going to? I, didn't, I, I can't believe it. When God did it, it was like a dream. And he's looking back at the time when, when the exiles began to go back. They followed Ezra. And they went back to Jerusalem. And they began to rebuild the temple. And then a little while later, Nehemiah led a group. And, and they began to rebuild the walls. And you can read about that whole story in those books of the Bible. And now the psalmist looks back on it. And he says, this is amazing. Look at what the Lord has done. Now look at verse 2. It says, our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Now, notice the joy and the laughter wasn't based on what they did. He said, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. In other words, our, our laughter and our joy, it's not based on our effort. It's not based on what we've done. It's based on what he's accomplished. Listen, you might be in church this morning and you, you feel like a failure I don't know, you might be in church this morning and you are a failure. I, I don't know, but, but we didn't come today to survey your life. We came to survey the wondrous cross. That, that's, what, that's what this moment, that's what this hour is all about. It's about lifting our eyes. It's about getting outside the limitations of your tent and my life and my reality, and it's stepping into the vast expanse of what God can accomplish. I love the song, that Isaac Watts wrote in 1707, when I survey the wondrous cross. Many of you maybe grew up singing that song. Probably not in the 1700s, but it's been around for a while. You might remember these words. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See his head, his hands, his feet? Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you think back to what the Lord has done, we're like those who dreamed. I mean, come on, do you deserve to be here today? Do we deserve his mercy? Do we deserve his grace? He says, no, no, no. When I look back on what the Lord has done, I have to sing. I have to burst forth in song. He says, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And then look at the rest of verse two. He says, then it was said among the nations The Lord has done great things. In other words, these are not God's people. These are other nations. Like, because I'm singing, because I'm giving testimony, because I'm a witness, and this is why you can't hold back on your worship. This is why we can't hold back our praise, because your worship is a witness. And he says, you filled, not what I did, but because of what you did, my mouth was filled with joy. My heart was filled with praise. And now the other nations are declaring the great things that you have done. Look at verse three. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Again, our joy, it comes from his finished work, not from what you're striving to accomplish. It comes from his finished work. Look at verse four. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes, Lord. Lord like streams in the Negev. Now, now this right here is a key verse because this verse changes the whole tense of the psalm. Up to this point, it's all past tense. Up to this point, the psalmist is looking back on what God did, and it was like a dream. I mean, the Lord, he just did amazing things, and he filled our mouths with praise, and now the other nations are praising God, and all of a sudden, in one verse, he changes gears. We go from a past tense testimony to a present tense prayer, and he says, Lord, restore our fortunes like streams In the Negev. In other words, this is not just a Sunday morning song for the sanctuary. This is a song from a barren place. This is a song from a place of need. This is a song that says, "God, I know what you did, but today I need you to do it again. I need you to do it again." We we sang it earlier. I've seen you move. You moved the mountains, but I believe you'll do it again. You made a way when there was no way, but I believe you'll do it again. That's what he's saying right here. Like, Lord, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. This is one of 17 songs of ascent. You might even have that heading in your Bible right under Psalm 126. The songs of ascent were 17 songs that made up the songbook that the people of Israel would use when they were going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So these are people that are are far from God's presence, but they're drawing near. The the anticipation is building. As they're moving towards the house of God, they're saying, Lord, we're coming because you've been faithful, but I need you to do it again. Come on, anybody there this morning? God, I'm here to worship you. You've done so much for me. If you don't ever do anything else, I'd still come to church this morning. You're worthy of my praise, but God, would you do it again? Would you do it today, God? Would you restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev? Now what does that mean? Streams in the Negev. That's talking about the, the land that was south of Jerusalem. And, and if you look at that territory, what you find is that it's a very dry and arid place. It's a hot walk. And, and they're coming through the Negev, and, and the ground is dry and, uh, it, it's, it's cracked and dusty, and, and they're moving through that place, but sometimes. Sometimes the rain comes, and when the rain comes in the Negev, it's like a flash flood. And, and within just a matter of minutes, all of a sudden, what looked like a dry and a parched land is suddenly flowing with streams. Although there's water there, where it looked like there was nothing that could grow, what you discover is there's been seed lying dormant in the ground all along. And life and vegetation begins to sprout up. And it happens so quickly. So this is a prayer for revival. This is not This is not like God just do something over the next, you know, I don't know, five, ten years. He's saying, God, do it like the streams that show up in the next where it looks like nothing's happening, bang, a flash flood of your presence comes and all of a sudden, the valley's teeming with life. That's what he's saying. God, do it quickly. It's what Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 43. We looked at this verse last week, but I want to read it again. In verse 18 and 19, God says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing, now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I'm making streams in the wasteland. So, this is the psalmist's cry for revival, saying, God, I know you've been faithful in the past, but today I'm dry. I know you've done miracles in the past, but today I'm sick. I know you've provided in the past, but today I'm in need. So I'm not asking you to just do something somehow, somewhere. I'm asking you to do it now. I'm asking you to do it suddenly, like streams in the wasteland. Now, now I want to look at the last two verses in Psalm 126, because this is the hope of the psalmist, and this is our hope today. He says in verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So here it is. He says, here's what's going to happen. We're we're sowing in tears, but we're going to reap with joy. Now, in Galatians six seven, the Bible tells us, "What a man sows, that he will also reap." So you reap what you sow. But Psalm one twenty six tells us, "You don't always reap the way you sow." You might reap what you sow, but you don't have to reap the way you sow. Sometimes we sow in tears, and maybe that's you today. And you know, we we'll say, "What do I sow in tears?" Well, one of the things we sow in tears is our worship. That's why it's called a sacrifice of praise, because sometimes we don't feel like it. I, 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 don't, I don't have anything happening in my life that, that feels very praiseworthy, but I'm going to do it anyway, even if I have to sow in tears, like Paul and Silas in the prison in Acts 16, lifting up their voices and worshiping God at the midnight hour. They said, you know what? I'm going to sow in tears because I believe I'm going I'm to reap a harvest with joy. For some of you, the sowing is the prayer. You're crying out to God. You're saying, God, would you, would you do this? Would you move? Would you do miracles? Would you answer? I'm desperate for you, God. For some of you, the, the sowing is your giving. And Maybe you're in a tight spot and you're going, I... I know, God, I know you said in your word that if I would honor you with the tithe, that you would bring the increase and you would bless me, but I just don't think I can do it today. I don't see it in the budget, but you know what? I'm going to stand on your word, and I'm going to sow even with tears. Or maybe the Lord has called you to go above and beyond faithfulness and And you've heard the tug of the Holy Spirit calling you into an expression of radical generosity to give to somebody else. And you're going, man, I, I really feel that need for them, but I feel the need for my own family too. And God's saying, if you will sow with tears, if you will stretch your faith and be faithful to do it, you'll reap with joy. For some of you, it's your ministry. You got so many things going on in your life. It would be easy to just get inward focused. It would be easy to just say, you know what, I don't really need, I I don't have time, I don't have margin, I don't have the bandwidth in my life to, to serve other people right now. I just, it's me and Jesus, okay? Not volunteering anymore, I'm not showing up early, I'm not staying late. But God said, if you'll be faithful with the seed, it won't return void. Your weeping will not go unnoticed. I love Psalm 56 Verse seven, or verse eight in the New Living Translation, it says, you keep track of all my sorrow. You have kept my tears in your bottle. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Like the Lord, the Lord would bottle your tears. People would do that at funerals when they were mourning someone that was Deceased. Those tears were precious because they represented a precious life. And so people would actually take a little bottle and they would bottle their tears. And the psalmist said, the Lord bottles your tears. You you might have to sow with weeping, but you're gonna reap with joy. You're gonna reap with joy. As the worship team comes, I I wanna just share a story with you that, that just blessed my heart as I read it this week again in my devotion. It's actually earlier in the book of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 38. And for time's sake, I just want to read it to you. It's powerful. It says in verse 1, In those days, Hezekiah became ill, and he was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, went to him, and he said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. If God gives you a word like that for me, just keep it. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't want that word. Just take it to the Lord in prayer. But sometimes the the spirit of prophecy is foretelling. And he's actually, he's just saying, like, in the natural, this is what's going to happen. You're going to die. So... The Lord compelled me to just tell you, get your house in order. You're not going to recover. But look at verse 2. It says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord. Remember me, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And then notice the action. It says, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. The God of your father, David, says, I have heard your prayers, and I've seen your tears. And I will add 15 years to your life. Isn't that awesome? Like, we got the medical report. We know how this goes. We know what's gonna happen. But the Lord said, I heard your prayers and I've seen your tears. I've seen your tears. And I can I can change the storyline. Nothing's too hard for God. Like I, I can, I can, I can do this differently. So the psalmist tells us, look, if you will. If you will continually go forth, weeping, bearing seed for sowing. I love the way the New King James Version says this next part of verse 6. It says, you shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Charles Spurgeon commented on that. And he said, don't you dare write doubtful where God writes doubtless. Isn't that good? Don't you dare write doubtful. Where God says, if you will sow in tears, you will doubtless come again, bringing the sheaves with you. What's he saying? He's saying you can be confident as you pray. Do it again. In a dry place. Do it again. In a barren season. Do it again. Why? Because we know that those who go out weeping, carrying the seed to sow, will doubtless come again with songs of joy, carrying the sheaves with them. In other words, they're going to bring a harvest. See, that's why, church, we have to corporately enlarge our tents because God is bringing in a harvest. Because your seed is not wasted, because your tears were not sown in vain, He's saying, I'm, I'm going to respond. So here's what we're gonna do. We're we're gonna just we're gonna stand on the authority of God's word at the end of this service, and we're gonna do what verse 3 said. We're gonna declare the Lord has done great things. That's why we showed up on a Sunday morning. Because every person in this room could testify. Has he been good? He's been good. He's been good. I mean, even if you don't have a personal story, look at the cross. Survey the wondrous cross. Get a higher view of God. It'll solve a hundred lesser evils. So we're going to declare the Lord has done great things. And then after we declare verse 3, we're going to declare verse 4. And verse 4 is a prayer. Lord, do it again. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Restore them like streams in the Negev. Do it now. Do it suddenly like a flash flood. Open the windows of heaven and let your presence and your power and your glory be poured out. That the atmosphere would change. Would you stand to your feet with me? I've asked this worship team to come up here because they're going to lead us in just declaring what the psalmist said. I've seen you move. You move the mountains. Do it again. You made a way through the wilderness. Do it again. I want to ask our worship team as they.